Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Transform Dance Podcast. You're listening to episode three. In episode one, we look at the macro context of dance and what it's like as a workplace. In episode two, we hear individually from one of our participants who designed a process in order to transform the harassment that she experienced in a previous workplace. In episode three, which is today's episode, you're going to hear three TJ facilitators in conversation with each other. They're going to be talking about the cases they supported and about their thoughts on using TJ within organizations broadly, but in particular within arts organizations and nonprofits. We have Hirut Malaku. She will share her thoughts and the feedback from the participant who she supported. BK Chan and Douglas Stewart, both of whom have lots of experience doing emotional literacy, anti-racism and equity work. And they'll be talking about what it was like to build a workshop series for male-identified leaders that tried to help people build skills for psychological safety in the workplace and how do we change the conditions of the dance industry that way. It was really interesting to hear their ideas about what's hard about this work, what could happen next within this work, and where they see this work could go. It's a fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Transform Dance podcast. My name is Meg Saxby, and I am hosting today. I'm going to be interviewing a group of speakers who are transformative justice facilitators, educators, and activists and advocates. So I'm here today with BK Chan, Douglas Stewart, and Hirut Malaku. And again, Transform Dance is a project that was active in Toronto between the spring of 2019 and spring and summer of 2020. We were funded by the Toronto Arts Council to use transformative justice approaches to work towards healing and community transformation in the Toronto dance community, specifically related to experiences of gender-based and sexual harassment in dance workplaces. So I'm gonna ask our speakers to introduce themselves and then we'll get into it. My name is Karen B.K. Chan. I'm one of the facilitators on this project. I'm working with uh, one of the participants on one of our case studies and as well on the third case, which you'll hear more about. So I'm an emotional literacy educator and uh, I'm interested in how emotions can uh, be a bridge to problem solving uh, as opposed to a barrier, which is sometimes how they're seen as being. So that's why I'm here. And I come from a background of emotional intelligence and uh, sex education. And so a lot of my experience has been with uh, doing anti-violence work connected to sexual violence and also talking to people about connecting mind, body, emotions and so forth. My name is Douglas Stewart, and I would describe myself as an equity, anti-racism, anti-oppression, and organized development consultant. I am involved in this project on the advisory committee, as well as working as one of the facilitators on case study three, um, along with BK. And my background is in the community, mostly working with not-for-profit, community-based, and healthcare-serving um, agencies. I'm somebody who has been doing equity and anti-oppression oriented work in communities over the years. I mean, my grounding is actually in queer communities and HIV AIDS, that's sort of the early part of my uh, professional career. And then 
you know, there's always been this mix of professional and activism, right? So the work I've been drawn to has been work that's also hopefully going to impact social change in some kind of way or support that. And so I was drawn to this work partly because I've been doing some work already within the arts community around how we think about um, justice in terms of, you know, marginalized and vulnerable people's experience. And so, yeah, it's, you know, been an interesting way to sit in conversations or reflections within the advisory group, as well as now building a curriculum around a particular case study that we're working on, and really with multiple stakeholders who are in key roles to make a difference. My name is uh, Hirut Malaku, and uh, I came into this world of transform dance and transformative justice through my work at the Third Eye Collective, which is a survivor-based organization for Black women who have experienced violence. And so when I heard that Transform Dance was actually interested in doing something, I saw that this is an excellent opportunity to see what I've been working at the grassroots level with kind of like no funding, with a lot of like volunteer work, just really laying the ground for transformative justice to take place. And now with this, with the support, the institutional support and the funding support, I was really interested to see what we could accomplish uh, with these cases. Thank you. Great. I wanted to ask, we talked about this a little bit on the first episode uh, when uh, I was talking to Christina, who's the executive director of, uh, of, of Generator, about where this project came from. But I wanted to ask you folks, from what you have seen, what would you say are some of the problems of how workplaces, especially arts workplaces, if you have background in that, but workplaces in general deal with harassment? Yeah, great question. I think this is at the heart of why I think TJ and RJ are really necessary because our structures um, for problem solving and for addressing harm so often focus on the moment that harm is done um, and who did it and who experienced the harm versus seeing the greater structure of things that allow harm or, you know, that encourage even harm to, to be done. And when harm is done to somebody specific, Actually, it's done to a lot of people in the community and, in, and around that person. So just taking an approach that says, actually, we are all interconnected, that itself is really powerful for me, that the TJ lens changes. And I think it also addresses the harm that happens when we do harm. So as opposed to I, I'm just punished for it, I'm actually also allowed to heal if I've, I've done harm either inadvertently or habitually or any of the ways I might do harm. Thank you. Douglas, anything you have to add to that? Well, yeah, the only thing I'd add is that it also removes the whole notion of the punitive. The idea that the goal of resolution is that, you know, somebody is, you know, the evildoer and somebody is the victim, right? Because I think our lives are much more complicated and layered than that. And I think what it allows is also to take the weight off the people who are targets and who are the more socially marginalized to, and sorry, the word I've been playing with now is structural, like being structurally marginalized, right? That suddenly there's an opportunity to negotiate resolution that allows for also, you know, looking at what it means, you know, to build on BK's point, the piece around how do we um, restore community, right? After something has happened. Because when something happens, usually not a lot of us can just walk away in terms of just being able to pay our bills or even just the fact that there's 
particular reasons why we've joined organizations or joined communities to also live our lives, experience our lives and experience ourselves or, or even practice our art or, you know, our skills and so on. And to suddenly lose that because we've been targeted and we've been made vulnerable, rendered vulnerable is a really big piece. I and mean, which is why people then hesitate to even want to name things or bring things forward. So I think what, you know, TJ or RJ, however we frame it, allows is for to take away the energy of um, the pressure of, oh my goodness, I'm not going to flag something that's going to position me in a contentional way. And so, you know, here's an opportunity to actually have a dialogue or a conversation or a process that allows us to enter it differently and, pot and potentially exit it differently, right? Thank you, Douglas. Hiru, do you have any anything to add on the on this part of what uh, what commonly doesn't work uh, for survivors and and others when we think of how workplaces typically respond to harassment? I don't. I think it's been mentioned, but the only thing I would bring up is it needs to be survivor centered, and the workplace do not allow for that as being the the first priority. There is just so many other legal consideration before it the consideration of the survivor and so it already at the start puts it at odds like douglas said you know like uh it's not about it doesn't need to be about punitive you know there's a way of resolving conflicts and problem without making people discardable yeah i just wanted to add also that sometimes harm can be experienced without it being done and so how like systemic injustices often work is that, you know, folks who experience it chronically on a daily basis are hypervigilant about it. And so something can happen. And I've been uh, in that experience myself where I'm experiencing scrutiny or I'm experiencing what I think of as exclusion or rejection. And it may not actually be happening, but a lot of the times the classical sort of standard ways of addressing uh, did somebody do wrong doesn't allow for that harm to be taken care of, that injury to be taken care of. So I'm really interested also in addressing and caring for and, and repairing the hurts that can happen without intention and sometimes without it, quote unquote, even happening. They're worthwhile to look at and, and paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Thank you. One of my favorite things about TJ is how it turns our ideas about time on its head, because we have this idea that harm happens in an instant, but it's actually a lot more complex than that. Um, I think that's an interesting thing that that comes out as we get deeper into uh, TJ processes. So Hirut worked as a facilitator on the first case study that we undertook, and she's brought some feedback, I think, both from her own experience and also from the experience of the participant that uh, that she was walking with. So Hirut, I want to give you the mic now uh, to share as much as that as you'd like to with our audience. Yeah, I had a wonderful conversation with my participant who has generously offered to give us feedback about what her experience has been. And so she is a, a Black woman. She thought that was important to mention. And in the way that she described it, it's like from the beginning of why she decided to enroll on this uh, project is because she had seen my face and that of Douglas' face on the website. And so for her, it was important that she has uh, a commonality with the project because 
based on the description of what the call for to participant, there was uh, no specific mention around asking or inviting specifically racialized population or just or other particular groups in particular. And uh, she understood it that usually by default means, uh, you know, the dance world, it's for white people. And so she didn't want to participate in an project where she had to explain what it is to be Black in addition to everything that was going on, or even just the idea of what the kind of racial violence that is a part of it. So that was the starting point for her. And even though she didn't know me, she respected Doug's work. And so it really speaks to how it's a relationship-based project. And when we're asking people to come and feel safe and vulnerable, is they have to have people whom they know could hold that that space for them. So with me, we spent a lot of time just getting to know each other, uh, building the trust. And so because of that, she felt comfortable incorporating elements that are rituals and ceremonies in there too and setting up the environment for that like that spiritual space and I know that wasn't also spoken of and in terms of when we're talking about TJ and the call but it's a very important part for people to feel that that's their space that there is some allocation to make that happen and uh, she actually thought it was a really really positive experience it's interesting because Participant 2 also talked a little bit about some of the stuff that your participant had mentioned. One thing they mentioned was a kind of like a healing that is spiritual uh, as opposed to only mental or emotional. So I thought that was kind of an interesting overlap. It's kind of like, I mean, each TJ case is uh, case by case and it's and it's different. And, and the way she decided to do it is, well, she... There was her own personal experience, but she didn't see her experience as being separate from other Black women's, other Black dancers' experience, and that it's a, it's a communal experience as well because we're addressing systemic issues of harm. So she decided to make an offering for Black uh, women as part of the conversation. So we had a, a workshop. And they were invited to come and talk and speak about their experience as well. And she curated the whole thing. And, and it, it, was, it was beyond beautiful. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was too short. I mean, I started working with her in, in September. You know, and so when you think of the, the process and then by the time the person starts actually telling their stories and then like identifying what their needs are and then like the planning and the logistics, it's, you know, in the past, I've, it's been what it's taken about two years to be doing such a process. So this to try to do it under nine months, I mean, it's like quite ambitious. <laughs> It's interesting because another parallel, and I was thinking of, so just for logistics, for folks to understand, um, we had a certain amount of money earmarked for facilitators and for their hours, and that divided by their rate turned into a certain amount of hours that were available. And then it was the, the participant and the facilitator together would figure out the kind of process that made sense. And what we learned in the case that Herut was following was that because the participant felt that need to include collective healing as part of their experience, some of the hours went to that. And so having this one set number basically didn't work because for a person who hadn't needed that additional piece or that different piece, those hours would have been distributed differently. 
So it was a good learning for us in terms of like, particularly when we're thinking about harm that has a, a much more explicit collective dimension, right? When, when harm has a particular racialized aspect or if it has to do with a certain community with disability or what have you, there needs to be something collective and we need to plan for that. And that will take longer and we need to be able to pay facilitators to support that too. Yeah, in her case, she had a conversational workshop. It was over a weekend. So one day was allocated for the small intimate conversation and another one was a dark uh, a dance workshop uh, the next day for other Black women. And so when you look at the amount of hours and resources allocated, it's just, it, it wasn't enough. Yeah, and I think that's a way of thinking that probably comes from in, in a lot of conventional harassment response responses. It's like it's a one-to-one or it's it's a very small and privatized process, right? Um, but what we're trying to do is a wider community approach, and so there needs to be more more flex there. Did you have any other feedback that your participant wanted to share or anything that's coming to mind as we're talking about this? No, she just wants that she felt uh, empowered by giving back to the community. Just one thing I think is worth mentioning is is both Hirut and BK's cases, you know, as as they go on and go deeper, had we if we had continuing resources, my sense is that in both of those cases, because, for example, of the group of people that Hirut's participant convened to talk about um, harassment of black women dancers, that could have very much gone in many different other directions. Right. There'd be other people and other experiences uh, within that group that, that uh, could have continued to to work within this project. So what I noticed was a little bit like, you know, how, how mushrooms grow underground type of thing. Like once we had the trust of one or two people, because typically harm happens in, in, in systems and in networks, right? It isn't usually a one-off situation. So that would be a way that this kind of approach could grow through those communities that are at risk of structural harm um, or who experience structural harm. Um, through the the the, tr- the trust within those networks. Yeah, I want to um, well to, for us to just recognize that there are, there are people in those communities and those groups who are doing this work. Yeah, they just have not been uh, recognized by outsiders as that they are not receiving the funding, but the work is ongoing. So I I think it's really important for for listeners or the funders to think of like, well, how do we support the people who are already doing this work? And and often uh, those are like racialized uh, women. Absolutely. Later on, I want to ask folks about their thoughts about where this could go in the future. Because one of the thoughts that, that we've been talking about is, you know, as a framework that's typically not <laughs> funded, right? And it's typically not played out in contexts where the people doing the the work are are getting paid like how do we ensure that if this framework becomes something that gets used in dance or arts or other sectors that that uh, that income is flowing to those with the praxis and the, the most experience so i want to flip to case three now but cases one and two ended up being focused on uh, specific individuals and, and experiences of harm and exclusion that they had had in their in their dance careers and in the dance communities and by the time we started to get to case number three one of the common trends i was hearing a lot about is folks would come forward to me and they would talk about harm they had experienced but they didn't always they often didn't really want to address it in a super specific way however they often wanted to see something done proactively and preventatively within the dance community to try to address some of these issues more structurally and more collectively. 
So we were hearing a lot about that. And uh, we started tossing around at the advisor group the idea of using the funding for case number three to try to do something more collective. And we decided uh, we were hearing about different kinds of harm that were happening in different dance spaces that really seemed to stem from leaders, uh, either formal leaders or informal leaders, really not understanding or being aware of or being able to hold psychological safety. And that looked uh, many different ways. We heard about it uh, in the form of bullying. We heard about it in the form of harassment. We heard about it of dancers feeling really unsafe. And that unsafety would play out in different ways depending on their, their intersectionalities and their social identities. So we started thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we could develop some really interactive, really experiential professional development work to start building the kind of leaders that we want in dance with the recognition that a lot of people, they end up in a leadership role in a dance or an arts organization without any formal training, <laughs> often with very little money, <laughs> usually no mentorship or, or some mentorship, but not, uh, not super formal. And sometimes whether they want to or not, they're just replicating what they've seen and experienced, right? And so a lot of what TJ is about is can we intervene in those conditions that create harm or that enable harm? So case study three uh, ended up being, instead of focusing on a, a previous instance of harm, we ended up developing something that would be a uh, four-part workshop series that would be available to, um, we originally thought, eight to ten participants and we targeted male-identified leaders. And this wasn't because uh, we didn't hear about harm that was done by people who were feminine of center or female-identifying. It was because the harm was different. What we were hearing about that was happening uh, under male-identified leadership was different. And just to uh, explain to any listeners, so the process that we used was we reached out to about 40 dance leaders, male-identified dance leaders, uh, sent out emails explaining, hey, we're thinking about doing this, and this is roughly what it would look like. And if you're interested, let us know, and we'll have an initial conversation. Uh, so I had those initial conversations and got together a bunch of feedback, and that's what I gave to BK and Douglas for them to massage and turn into the series. So we partially did that because we wanted to try to create some safety for people. We weren't sure whether they would be open to the idea, if they might feel threatened by it or uncomfortable with it. And we thought that if, uh, if we get them on the phone talking about it, it might be easier to understand that this is really about transformation and, and, and positive change. So uh, we hired BK and Douglas to design and deliver that. And they're here with us. So I want to turn it over to you two. Now, this one is still very much in motion. So they're still in the process of designing it. And the first rollout is going to be early June. So for our listeners, could you give a sort of broad summary of some of the key themes that you're planning to cover from what you know so far, recognizing that this is currently still in iteration? I mean, I would say that if I look at some of the key themes overall, what we're trying to do is enhance, because I think, you know, you're hearing that quite a few of the folks are coming in with kind of a sort of a openness, their own levels of awareness. They're sort of on a continuum, even as all of them are on a spectrum, each are on a continuum of their own understanding and exploration of these issues, which is why they were attracted to engage with this process. And so I would say that what we're trying to do is enhance their self-awareness, create some deeper understanding of the issues, create some comfort, confidence, competence, you know, skills and tools, and then creating opportunity to practice and problem solve, explore, reflect, 
connect, network, and possibly create, right? So we feel like we're less, you know, creating this curriculum of content to, you know, sort of present to folks, but really to engage them in, in what many of them said that they wanted rather than a didactic process, one where they could feel that they're with their colleagues kind of problem solving or reflecting together and and really being in a community of how they engage, right? So in some of that, some of them flagged an interest in, you know, trying to imagine a future of dance and what it could look like and how it can shift and what leadership role would be in that. And then in that conversation would be to explore the nuances of power and power within the industry, including things like the role of boards in organizations. So it's not just them as individuals, but how those boards define and inform, you know, what the um, industry looks like and even how their companies function and address the kinds of issues that we're talking about. And but so it's within their organizations, within the industry, within the art form, but also within their roles and particularly within their lives. And then really wanting to explore skills building. So some things that have been surfaced so far, conflict resolution, communication, deep listening, how they apply theory and language. And then there's a real interest um, from folks to you know, create together, that they want to. And it's sort of interesting because one of the challenges for BK and I will be, you know, now with COVID-19, <laughs> restricting what this can look like. A lot of them were very interested, you know, not just sitting in a room listening to folks, but they wanted to be active, moving around, have exercises, and they want to also create together. And so BK and I have been trying to figure out what that can look like. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate what you're saying, Douglas, about like people want to create together. I feel like that's such a positive generative response, you know, like often a lot of the learning and training we do around sexual harassment in particular, it's so compliance driven. It's so dry. It's it puts people in this passive fear driven space. So I think approaching it as like, how do we help people create something positive together is just like awesome. BK. I don't know how to phrase this, but so often trainings or or offerings like this assume that the people in the room have not done harm and would never do harm. And I, I'm hoping and I'm looking forward to this opportunity being different. This is uh, a time to have this conversation that I hope actually TJ is helping everyone have more often. The conversation is I might do harm and I might have done harm. And how might I face that within myself? How might I face that among my peers? And how what do I do now? Because so many of what we've heard is folks inadvertently uh, misusing power or feeling like they don't have any options given, you know, time and resources, stress, that, you know, harmful dynamics or abusive dynamics happen. Um, and so I'm hoping that we have some of these brave conversations where we don't assume anything about anyone, um, but that folks show up in a way that makes it possible to ask those questions of each other and of, of themselves. I'm hoping that what we can support and empower even is their sense of comfort and confidence to keep having these conversations with each other. You know, even if it's just that they have a network that checks in as follow-up to this, but also how that could even sort of snowball into maybe inviting other men, uh, even into sharing the experiences they had through this process and in an ongoing way. Because I think that they all have a key role, as we know why we chose them, in terms of to evolve the culture of dance. 
And I, and I think that we know that that doesn't happen in just let's have a few sessions and then, okay, let's go back to our corners and do what we're doing. But how do we continue to have a collective conversation? And it might be that even in this process of some of the evaluation we think about, is there ways that this process, we can continue to support that beyond the course and beyond the program? So I want to ask you folks uh, one or two last questions. Thank you for your participation in this conversation. So uh, I want to ask about what support you would want to flag that TJ practitioners need when doing this work, especially in organizations and institutions and workplaces. Parts of this that have been particularly useful is the thought of having a, a community of practice, because as a practitioner, I run up against a lot of questions. What should I do? How do I, what is the right thing to do? Do I share this? Do I not share this? Is it more important to be transparent versus is it more important to hold space? you know, like whose shoulder does this go on? So that's, that's nice. Um, another practice that we've been invited to do on this project is to reflect and write. And I don't think I would have done that um, if I didn't commit to doing it. And I just keep thinking, oh, I got to do this for Meg. But um, really, it's it's a process for me and for my process for, for the practice. So that's been really helpful to just reflect. And then I also thought, I mean, it still might happen that um, it depends on how we design the process, more than one facilitator will be necessary. So that's that's an obvious uh, a practical one. Douglas, anything you want to add on what TJ facilitators need to do this work well? Well, the way I think about it is sort of when I think of the kind of tools that um, there was a reflection from some of the participants for case study three. So, and even just generally, I think, even for myself, it's just, I think that sense of, are we in a community and a culture and an industry that buys in to the notion of this, right? And so that, you know, there is a sort of um, echoing of these principles and values and ways of working, you know, sector-wide so that, it feels like, yeah, this is almost a, a definite go-to for folks in terms of what is an option, what's available in terms of how we understand and how we navigate these issues, right? And even just our lives, because I think that one of the things about this is that it's not just transformative of industry, but it's also of individuals and how they see themselves. So if I think about, you know, Herut's example and case study of that situation where an individual from their own process could think about, so what's the collective look like? And I think it is that notion of a collective kind of response that means that this, so when you think of tools that get created, so how do they support that? So is, is there policies in place? Are there, you know, um, protocols for, you know, when, and it doesn't have to be, I, I like the fact that we're moving away from something happens doesn't have to be something happens. It can be, how do we set the tone and create the environment? How do we also support people who might be feeling something about I'm here and it feels, so nothing has happened or has happened yet, but I already am noticing or observe. It's the whole idea of when we support bystanders, right? The idea that, so it may not be happening to me, but I'm aware of seeing dynamics and ways of even just somebody's tone. And I mean, I think of, um, Bill uh, 168, Violence in the Workplace, when that came out, right? And one of the conversations we had to have was, how do we think about violence and how we understand notice violence? So violence doesn't have to be somebody attacking somebody physically, but it's somebody slamming doors or banging on tables or using a certain tone of voice or seeming to isolate certain people, right? So how do we pay attention, notice what's going on in an environment that means that 
you know, anyone can then say, ah, oh, I think this might be a, an opportunity here for us to have some conversations and look at what's going on. And I think for us in terms of where power lies, it's about how to support leadership in that and what are those tools that leadership would need to be able to also frame the environment, but also critically anybody would need to be able to understand that it's an option that they have. And I think it would be good to also think about and reflect on, so if a company or an organization doesn't have that commitment, how do we support an industry where at least individuals in the industry understand there's somewhere to go? So it might not be within my organization because my organization may not be there yet, but can I come here? Like like people did for this ca- these case studies, right? Could I... Are there other resources, right? And to think about the resources that we've sort of, um, you know, mobilized in how we've been working with folks, is there ways to keep that ongoing and sustainable in some way? Just wondering, uh, while we have our facilitator brains in the room, um, from your perspectives, so for each case, we had about uh, $11,000, about half of which went to the Participant Wellbeing Fund and about half of which paid for the facilitator fees. Was that a useful way of thinking about the work? Was there any third or fourth or fifth categories that we missed for anyone who's trying to recreate something like this in the future or put it in place? Obviously, in in all cases, it's useful to have more resources rather than less. Uh, I think that one goes without saying, but was there any particular kind of resource that was necessary to do the work? I'm thinking about, you know, uh, resources connected to you know just geography right so it's uh when i uh, started to think about this project i just assumed that everyone was in the same place and they were in the same place and will continue to be in the same place and so it was just a matter of choice whether we bring people into a room uh or not but so then the idea of, uh, well, transportation for getting people to a same physical space might be an issue. And so I can imagine that resources would be needed for that. Um, and imagining time, uh, if this means people have to be away from their jobs or their families in order to attend to uh, a circle or any kind of process like that. So that sort of came up. And then we also uh, did some creative flexing around costs around meeting, right? So uh, in lieu of a a very uh, formalized meeting space, my participant and I, it was more comfortable for them to meet in a public space that had, you know, privacy enough for us to chat, but public enough for us to uh, be in public. So things like that doesn't have a dollar amount attached to it, but it's, it's one of the considerations that I hadn't thought of. I also want to add that specifically Wraparound Fund has uh, practically been very useful. So when I'm working with um, someone around the issue, so often there is something else to be done that like healing or release or talking, you know, that, that requires not somebody in my role. But, so it's actually helpful to feel like we are actually part of a team and so that the participant can feel empowered to seek uh, support in their own way. And I don't imagine that I have to be the access point to everything. So I think it, it also levels out some of the power between us that I'm just one of the gears in this machine that the participant is mostly directing. 
Um, so that putting a dollar amount to that really helps, I think, just to have that option and to imagine this is the landscape. Thanks for joining us for episode three of the Transform Dance podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the context of dance, tune into episode one. If you'd like to hear more about the experience of our participants, you can check out episode number two. For more on the logistics of how we made it work, what the budget was like, what the timelines were like, what process steps we took, you can see a written report on the Generator website at generatorto.com forward slash transform hyphen dance. Thanks for listening. <laughs>